There's an old joke that film critics are little more than frustrated directors. But if many an honest word is spoken in jest, where would that leave François Truffaut? Even as a critic aged as 22, when he was writing for Art Spectacle and Cahiers du Cinéma, Truffaut had such a formidable reputation that he was already referred to as the gravedigger of French cinema. Aside from his lengthy and often merciless reviews, he also hammered up lengthier and even more incisive articles railing against the state of French cinema, a fossil he dismissed as le cinéma de papa. As far as Truffaut was concerned, French cinema was the country of old men, whose notions of quality went nowhere near the art. With the exception of precious few directors such as Jean Renoir, Robert Bresson, Jean Cocteau, Max Offuls and Jacques Tati, French cinema came cloaked in impersonal sentimentality and thus lacked any degree of sincerity. So pitiless was Truffaut's pen that the organisers of the 1958 Cannes Film Festival decided against granting him press accreditation. Not to be ignored, Truffaut then went off and made his feature film debut, The 400 Blows, and the very next year returned to the Croisette, where he was duly awarded Best Director. Down through the decades, there have been many great directorial debuts. Lucchini Visconti's Assassini, Saturday at Rise, Pate Banchelli, Pierpaolo Pasolini's Acatone, David Lynch's A Razorhead, Steven Soderbergh's Sex, Lies and Videotape, John Lasseter's Toy Story, Alejandro Iñárritu's Amores Perros, not to mention this little gem. Now tell me honestly, my boy, don't you think it's rather unwise to continue this philanthropic enterprise, this inquirer that's costing you a million dollars a year? You're right, Mr. Thatcher. I did lose a million dollars last year. I expect to lose a million dollars this year. I expect to lose a million dollars next year. You know, Mr. Thatcher, at the rate of a million dollars a year, I'll have to close this place in 60 years. But no matter the brilliance of all those titles, one of the things that separates Truffaut's debut from all the others is that his picture gave impetus to an entire genre, the autobiopic, specifically the formative years of childhood and youth. Yes, Truffaut had one antecedent, Jean Vigo's anarchical Zego de Conduite. But while that film is a landmark, it delivered only an impression of school days, not an actual account of Vigo's childhood. That may have appeared startling to the critics at Cannes, but looking back, no one should have been in the least bit surprised. After all, it was Truffaut who turned the focus of critical attention away from what was happening on the screen and to who was behind the camera. That 180 degree shift was so sudden, so severe, so shocking, cinema has never been the same since. Truffaut remapped the power of creativity. It was not the studio, it was not the producer, and it was not the star. And it was not even the director. It was the auteur, the inspiring and driving factor whose personality dominated the film's very being. For Truffaut, a true director was so articulate in the art of film that the camera could be wielded as an author would a pen. A director's vision is so indelible, their style so unique, their themes so recurring, you could read their personality just by watching their films. And it was through that combination that a cinema of sincerity could be achieved. Here is Truffaut's eldest daughter, Laura, contributing to a 1996 BBC documentary, The Man Who Loves Cinema. He discussed this with me when I was a teenager, maybe when I was about 13 or 14. He told me in so many words that when he was a child, he suffered so much from the lack of presence of his family there, total lack of interest in, in him, that he made film 
his family. He made cinema his roots, and that he it had helped him greatly, but he had also, to some extent, he had lived to regret it. His reason for being, really, was filming his movies. Contagious as the author theory still is, it is well worth considering its origin. And a big clue comes in the caption at the end of the 400 Blows opening credits. It reads, This film is dedicated to the memory of André Bazin. Bazin was not only the editor of Cahiers du Cinéma, he was also in many ways Truffaut's surrogate father. Truffaut was born in 1932 to Janine de Montferrand when she was just 17. And when the baby's father made it clear that he had no intention of raising a child, Janine married Roland Truffaut. But even then, when François was born, he was sent away to be raised by his grandmother. That distance never left the young boy, and a sense of estrangement lingered through his childhood and youth, replaced only by his obsession with cinema. Constantly skipping school, by his mid-teens, Truffaut had started his own cine club, and it was through that enterprise that he met Bazin. But then at the age of 18, military service thundered in. Traumatised, Truffaut contacted Bazin, and it was only through Bazin's intervention that the distressed youth was released from the army which was how Truffaut came to be a film critic. As for Bazin, he was a devout Christian, and his faith heavily influenced how he viewed cinema. And it was through his conversations with Bazin that Truffaut began to formulate a film theory that placed the individual creative spirit at the very centre of the art. Although too young to serve in the French resistance during the war, Bazin was nonetheless vehemently anti-Nazi, identifying even as a teenager the depravity of their dehumanising ethos. After the war, and upon learning just how low the Nazis had gone, Bazin saw film had an opportunity, if not a responsibility, to restore dignity and sanctity to the individual. Film could do this because, to use Bazin's own words, cinema was a science and therefore a miracle of God's creation. For Bazin, humankind had always attempted to convey the beauty of the world, but although painting reflected those efforts, no matter how beautiful they were, be it a canvas, fresco or wood panel, paintings were only approximations of the world. Photography offered more, because it had an unparalleled ability to not just reproduce reality, but attest the truth, bear witness to the world. Although never religiously observant, Truffaut transformed the essence of Bazin's perspective, and in 1954, at the tender age of just 22, he penned one of the most influential essays ever written about film. A certain trend in French cinema rejected the notion of an industry because it was insincere and impersonal. It lacked a creed. And so instead, Truffaut called attention to the individual, the creator, the invisible but always present guiding hand of the director. Intent on putting his theory into practice, Truffaut went to make his autobiopic The 400 Blows. But on November 11th, 1958, just as he embarked on his very first day of production, Bazin died of leukaemia. As stated, Truffaut made his dedication at the end of the opening credits. But look at the credit sequence once more, 
and you'll notice something else taking place. Under Jean Constantine's score, Truffaut treats us to a series of shots that not only take us through the streets of Paris, each shot contains a view of the Eiffel Tower. And while the first part of the credits have us approaching it, for the second half we are looking back at it. Could that great towering construct stand for Bazin himself? A beacon of light, not just for Paris, but a fixed point in Truffaut's life, visible from every vantage point in the city. And while as a youth Truffaut went towards Bazin, now that his surrogate father and great mentor was dead, Truffaut knew he had to move forward. So the 400 blows has an interesting motion. About Truffaut's childhood, it is looking back. But at the same time, it is also Truffaut's own bid to be a filmmaker, so it is looking forward. But unlike so many other films set in the past, and in particular films about youth, The 400 Blows does not long to return to childhood. It is not nostalgic for that time. And that is how Truffaut avoided falling into the trap of sentimentalism, and thus the insincerity that he so railed against. Instead, we get an honest appraisal of adolescence. So much for the film's opening. Let us discuss its ending. Having gotten into so many scrapes, Truffaut's surrogate, Antoine Donnell, played by first-time actor Jean-Pierre Léo, is sent to a reform school in Normandy, from which he summarily runs away. Using the full width of his widescreen frame, Truffaut and cinematography Henri Dacay track with Antoine as he runs along a quiet country road. At last, the world is opening up for the young boy, and it appears he is running to embrace this new and hopeful space. He runs and runs and runs, and Truffaut and editor Marie-Joseph Yoyot let the shot run as well. It goes on so long, you might begin to wonder, when is it going to end? When the film and the camera runs out? What Truffaut was doing was attesting to the cinema founded by the neorealists, Roberto Rossellini, Vittorio De Sica and Luchino Visconti, that not every moment had to lead to another moment, but can instead be celebrated in itself. So Truffaut lets Antoine run for almost a minute and a half. And by not interrupting Antoine's run, Truffaut encourages us to take each step with him, to synchronise our breathing with his. A dissolve brings Antoine off the road and through rolling fields and paths, and a cut then brings him down to a beach. Once more he runs and we resume a pace with him. That is until Antoine runs to the very edge of the water. With the waves lapping up on the shore, the boy has nowhere left to run. And then, in a majestic moment, Truffaut has Antoine turn and look directly into the camera. Here is the late critic for The Observer, Philip French, from the same 1996 BBC documentary. It has a great lyrical freshness, a great sense of pain, a wonderful performance, one of the great screen performances by a child actor, by the 12-year-old uh, Leo. Um, it also has one of the most copied devices in the cinema in the 35 years since, which is the freeze frame on the hero at the end, leaving him sort of uh, in the middle of life, a question over where he's going to go. This has been endlessly copied. I don't think it's ever been done better or with greater justification than uh, Truffaut did it in um, 400 Blows. French is correct. Countless films have cribbed from the freeze frame ending, including Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Three Days of the Condor, Rocky, Saturday Night Fever, Gallipoli, Diner, The Breakfast Club, Harry Potter and The Prisoner of Azkaban. 
the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. Death Proof. And while some of those titles are classics, none of them, simply none of them, have come close to the complexity Truffaut delivered. By freezing the image, Truffaut has created an icon. Not in the religious sense that Bazin might have inferred, but rather a secularised one. Antoine ran as far as he could, and with nowhere else to go, he turns to look at us as if seeking an answer. Without doubt, the freeze frame ends the story in an ambiguous fashion, leaving Antoine stuck in a moment of confusion. But that confusion is the honest expression of uncertainty we all experience as teenagers. Our lives ahead of us, what are we to do? In that way, Truffaut fulfilled what Bazin had so often written about. Truth was within cinema's grasp. In a post-war Europe nearly decimated by the fascist killing machines, Truffaut's film attested to the importance of every life. Reading the script, a potential financier might have asked, what is so special about this boy? He has no particular talent. He does not achieve anything. There isn't even a plot. And a studio executive might have dismissed the project as unsuitable subject matter. The boy did not respect his parents. He lied to his teachers, stole from his friends. His behaviour was socially corrosive. If it were a school report, Duanel would be a write-off. Which is precisely the point Truffaut makes at the end. This boy grew up to be me. His life always had validity because he always had potential. This youth, like all youths, is important and should never be turned away or neglected. To think of the 400 blows is to realise it paved the way for everything from Federico Fellini's Amacord, Andrei Tarkovsky's Mirror, Ingmar Bergman's Fanny and Alexander, Woody Allen's Radio Days, John Borman's Hope and Glory, Louis Malle's Au Revoir les Enfants, Terence Davies' The Long Day Closes and Spike Lee's Crooklyn, to Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous, Noah Baumbach's The Squid and the Whale, Shane Meadows' This is England, Marjan Satrapi's Persepolis, Terence Malick's The Tree of Life, Destin Daniel Cretton's Short Term 12, Richard Linklater's Boyhood, Alfonso Cuaron's Roma, and Greta Gerwig's Ladybird. So if you're tired, we can sit down. I'm not tired. Oh, okay, I just couldn't tell because you were dragging your feet. Well, I just couldn't tell. Why didn't you just say pick up your feet? I didn't know if you were tired. You were being passive aggressive. No, I wasn't. You are so infuriated. Please stop yelling. I'm not yelling. Oh, it's Honey, perfect. I love it. Neatly placed between the opening credits and the freeze frame, Antoine skipped school with his friend René, played by Patrick O'Fay. In fact, René was based on Truffaut's real childhood friend, Robert Lachanet, who served as production assistant. Together, Antoine and René head to the amusements, where Antoine dares to go for a spin on the centrifuge. As he so often does in the story, Truffaut includes a scene that does not necessarily forward the plot, but instead revels in the phenomenon of living. As the great apparatus cranks up to its maximum speed, we see gravity shift, and suddenly Antoine is able to negotiate himself about the wall, wriggling this way and that until he is upside down. The engine rumbles and the image trembles, but there is nothing dangerous, just the pure delight that the audience can share in. But yet again, there is more to it than that. Consider it carefully, and the centrifuge resembles the old 19th century children's toy, the zoetrope. Consisting of a drum with tiny slits on the upper half, with a series of near-identical images placed on the inside of the drum's lower half, when turned at great speed, the images glimpsed through the slits appear to be moving. 
that illusion was the forerunner of cinema. With a series of near-identical images running through a projector, and in a way only light can defy gravity, end up on a screen. Other films have taken their characters to an amusement park, but all too often the directors limit themselves to the Ferris wheel, a shooting gallery, or a hall of mirrors. But Truffaut took us somewhere else and delivered a thrill that commented on the nature of cinema itself. And if you're quick, you can see it is there that the director makes a cameo appearance, as if it were his presence that is about to careen his younger self off into a new direction. And indeed, that was the case. Premiering at Cannes on May the 4th, 1959, and winning Best Director 11 days later, The 400 Blows placed Truffaut at the spearhead of La Nouvelle Vague, a group of young directors, Jean-Luc Godard, Jacques Rivette, Claude Chabrol, all of whom had written for Cahiers de Cinema, and who would forever change the direction of film. 